This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Welcome to Listen In, a bite-sized bio podcast series allowing you to access the best of bite-sized bio webinars wherever you are. Hello, this is Eva Amson welcoming you to this bite-sized bio webinar, which today is sponsored by Eppendorf. Eppendorf is a biotech company which develops, produces, and distributes systems for use in all spheres of life science. The company's broad range of high-quality products and systems is used by researchers worldwide to efficiently carry out their work. Today's presentation is titled Everyday Culture Practice, Improving Reproducibility in Cell Culture, and is being presented by Dr. Jessica Wagner from Eppendorf. Jessica is an application specialist focusing on cell handling and workflows at Eppendorf. After studying biology at the universities of Marburg and Dusseldorf, she started to work towards her PhD with a focus on reproductive biology at the medical school Essen. Entering the cell culture laboratory as a graduate student for the first time in 2006, she came to Eppendorf with many years of experience in cell culture, sharing her knowledge in seminars and user workshops worldwide. As always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation, so please type any questions you have into the questions box which appears on the bottom of your screen and I'll put them to Jessica at the end. So now over to you, Jessica, for the presentation. Thank you, Eva, for the introduction and welcome everyone also from my side. So first, let's have a look at the contents of today's presentation. After a short introduction, I will talk about some general aspects that influence reproducibility of different, cells, different types of cell culture experiments. And we will then have a look at the routine culture steps and outline the best methods to improve overall cell quality. In the end, I will touch the topic of misidentified cell lines and cell authentication. And before we start the Q&A, I will give you a short insight into the product solutions from Eppendorf that can help you to increase reproducibility. I want to start with showing you some results of a survey conducted by Nature Magazine. In this survey, more than 1,500 researchers of all different scientific disciplines have been asked if they see a current crisis in reproducibility. And as you can see here, more than 50% of the researchers surveyed agreed that there is a significant crisis and taken together, 90% do see reproducibility as a problem in science. And shown here on the right-hand side are the responses to the questions, to the question if there are any measures undertaken to enhance reproducibility. And although the topic seems to be on people's minds, when you have a look at the results here of the first question on the left, still more than one third of the researchers have never established any procedures for reproducibility in their lab. No matter which scientific field you look at, there are a few general principles that should be followed in every scientific process. A rigorous experimental design, including proper statistic for robust and unbiased results, a clear and complete documentation of both the experimental procedures and the obtained results, transparency in reporting results and experimental details, and last but not least, the reproduction of results are cornerstones of good scientific practice. Using cultured cells as model systems has indisputable benefits. 
especially primary cells, retain many functions and properties of their parental tissues, which makes them an ideal model system to test new therapeutic approaches. From initial target validation studies through clinical candidate selection to subsequent translational studies, the use of continuous cell lines as a renewable resource of cell material is essential across numerous areas of biomedical research. But the cultivation of eukaryotic cells has some major drawbacks that, when overlooked, can lead to severe problems in reproducing experimental data. I think everyone working in a cell culture lab is aware of the risk of having contaminations with microorganisms that overgrow and ruin the cultures. Especially mycoplasma are difficult to detect and are therefore a special threat in cell culture labs. Cross-contaminations of different cell lines are a widespread problem that endangers the reliability and reproducibility of experimental data. Besides microbial and cross-contamination, it is often overlooked that continuous cell lines, which have an unlimited lifespan, can undergo genetical changes. So although the cells continue to proliferate, their genotype as well as the phenotype can change over time. The cultivation conditions can have a great effect on the cells. And here we are not only talking about specific experimental conditions that result in different cellular responses. It's about media formulation, the use of serum, or such simple things as incubator door openings and pipetting. Cells can respond to the smallest influence. And all these risks and drawbacks need to be managed for cell culture experiments to be reproducible. And with this webinar, I want to give you some practical tips how to incorporate certain standards into your cell culture routine that help to improve reproducibility. But before we proceed, here comes our first poll question. As you will see, it is a very general question, and I'm curi curious about your answer. So the question is, do you think that cell culture experiments are more difficult to reproduce than others? And the answers you can click on is yes, no, or I don't know. So we are waiting a few seconds until your answers are coming in. So again, the question is, do you think that cell culture experiments are more difficult to reproduce than others? Yes, no, or I don't know. Okay, and I see the answers are slowly coming in. We will wait a few seconds more. <clears throat> okay, and I think we can slowly close the poll and these are the results. So um, as you see here, more than 60%, 61%, said yes, only 28% says no, and 11% answered I don't know. So thank you very much for participating. So let's have a closer look at the steps that are usually part of the cell culture workflow, no matter um, which, specific sorry, which specific cell type you're working with. All right, so... Um, I want to start with the two steps shown here on the right. Um, the seeding of cells that are used for an experiment. <clears throat> so this is what we are looking at in the next chapter, how to ensure best experimental conditions. Let's have a closer look at this first experimental step that is so important, the seeding or the plating of cells. 
The precondition for getting comparable results is to have a comparable number of cells for every negative control, positive control, and for every experimental replicate, of course. Variations in seeding cell numbers and the formation of air bubbles during pipetting will not only increase standard deviations, it will also make your results less reliable. When you fill, for instance, a 96-well plate with cells, it will take some time until you have filled all the wells. No matter which type of pipette you are using, or if you are pipetting the cells from a tube or from another type of reservoir, the longer the seeding process, the higher can be the variation in cell number from one well to the other. As you see in the image on the upper right, the cells sink towards the bottom of the tube with time, and this sedimentation can go quite fast within minutes. Therefore, the cells need to be resuspended or mixed to swirl them up in between to get an equal number of cells in every well. Saying that, we should keep in mind that cell culture media tend to foam due to the high protein content of supplemented serum. Air bubbles can hinder cell attachment. In the lower image here, you can see how an air bubble hinders the cells nearby to adhere properly to the surface. When you use a small plate format like 96 or 384 well, these few cells that do not attach to the bottom because of the air bubble can already have an impact. So too harsh and fast pipetting should be avoided to reduce the formation of air bubbles and also to reduce shear forces, which further stress the cells. So be gentle to your cells when you pipette them. Here you see how a classical micropipette works. It's a so-called air cushion system. By pushing the control button, you push down the air above the liquid and the liquid gets released. With this system, you have variable influencing factors, which I will talk about in the next few slides. They are best suitable for aqueous solutions, and unless you don't use filter tips, the inside of the pipette can be contaminated by aerosols. Positive displacement system, which you probably know as dispenser or stepper, function without air cushion. The piston is part of the pipette tip itself, and it's in direct contact with the liquid that is pushed down and released. So these pipetting systems are contamination free and are unaffected by the type of liquid you are pipetting. And by the way, as there is no air inside the dispenser tip, you cannot create any air bubbles during pipetting. I already talked about pipetting different liquids. So when you treat your cells with any recombinant proteins or inhibitors, these are often supplied in lyophilized form and need to be dissolved before use. Commonly used dissolvents are alcoholic solutions like ethanol, as well as DMSO. Both liquids can be difficult to pipette. Ethanol is a volatile liquid that tends to drip out of the pipette tip. With DMSO, you have a viscous liquid. So what some people do is they cut the tip of the pipette tip to create a wider opening. In both cases, alcoholic solution that is dripping out of the pipette tip and a tip that is cut to create a wider opening for viscous liquids, you cannot pipette an exact volume. But especially when you're pipetting any critical proteins, drugs, or inhibitors that you want to test with your cells, exact volume <clears throat> is essential. Just imagine you want to test different concentrations of a substance and you cannot be sure if the volume you pipette is precise. So looking at the different pipetting systems I talked about in the previous slide, a dispenser is a good choice here because its precision is unaffected by the type of liquid you are pipetting. <clears throat> Not only the type of liquid influences the pipetting result, also the pipetting techniques, technique play a role. 
especially when using air cushion pipettes. Hold the pipette vertical when aspirating the liquid as seen here on the left image and immerse the pipette tip only slightly and try to keep a constant immersion depth. If you follow this technique, you will improve the precision of the volume that you are pipetting. How the handling of cells and to be more precise, how pipetting of cells can influence your experimental outcome is shown on this slide. In this graph here on the left, you see the results of a cell viability assay. Each column represents one row of a 96 well plate. The aim was to seed an identical number of cells in each well. Two rows were left out for blanks, so it's only 10 rows here. The cells were plated with a manual eight-channel pipette, and after 24 hours, the number of viable cells was determined using a color colorimetric assay. In rows one to five, you see varying cell numbers in the wells and therefore high standard deviations. Here, the user did not mix the cell suspension between pipetting each row. So the cells sedimented in the reservoir with time. And in addition, the pipette was held in different angles and heights during aspiration. In rows six to 10, you see the results with mixing the remaining cells before pipetting each row, aspirating at constant height and in upright position. Taken together, these data show that the pipetting technique can have a big influence on the results of a cell-based assay. Besides seeding equal cell numbers, when we are talking about adherent cells that attach to the bottom of the culture vessel, you also want to have an homogeneous distribution of the cells on the growth surface of that vessel. On the lower left image, you see what happens if you prefill the vessel with medium at the cells, and that's it. No mixing, no movement of the vessel. What happens is that the cells mainly adhere in the middle where you have brought them in. There are different techniques how you can disperse the cells evenly. Some people use a figure eight-like movement, others prefer a cross-like movement of the plate or dish. And as you can see here, both techniques lead to a better distribution of the cells, but the smaller the diameter of the vessel, the less liquid movement you have because of the surface tension of the liquid. So, Instead of pre-filling the vessels with medium and add the cells in a second step, you can first dilute the cell suspension to the desired concentration in a tube, so preparing a kind of master mix, and, and, and then add the complete volume in one step to the well. Thus, you have an even cell distribution throughout the complete vessel and the cells attach homogeneously to the growth surface. And here on this next slide, I show you an example how uniform cell adhesion or cell distribution can have an impact on your experiment. In these experiments, we have transfected the cells with a GFP expression construct and imaged them later on. As you see in these images, transfection efficiency is sensitive to cell density. The optimum for transfection is a medium cell density. When you have an evenly distributed cell layer, you have a uniform transfection efficiency. And here in this next slide is the quantif quantification of these experiments. In the areas with medium density, you have the highest transfection efficiency. In this case, it was between 50 and 60%. In the dish with uneven distributed cells, the efficiency varied between 26 and 56%, which in total gives you a lower transfection success rate and a much higher standard deviation. So, Let's come to another factor that can influence cell attachment and growth, and that is vibration. 
Here are two simple examples. On the left, you see adherent cells that are exposed to frequent incubator door openings in the first few hours after plating. These vibrations can cause uneven adhesion of cells to the substrate they are growing on. On the right, it is shown what happens when you move vessels with freshly seeded cells. So for example, you want to put your Petri dishes into a crowded incubator and need to push other vessels aside to make space on the shelf. This manual moving can disturb even cell adhesion and distribution. External vibration sources in the lab include running centrifuges, fridges, or air conditioning systems. Some incubators have a fan inside, which is obviously one of the most critical sources of vibration because the cells are placed more or less directly next to the fan. So whenever possible, incubators without internal fan should be preferred, especially for sensitive cells or sensitive experiments. And when you have enough space in the lab, it is advisable to not place the incubator nearby a centrifuge or a fridge. The conditions for the cells in the CO2 incubator should be as stable as possible. Every time the door of the incubator is opened, the atmosphere inside is, is disturbed. It is a good advice to reduce the traffic in and out of the incubator as much as possible. Only open the door when necessary and close it as soon as possible. The incubator should have a short recovery of CO2 and temperature levels after door opening. <clears throat> and some incubators achieve that by an overshoot, especially in temperature, but this can be harmful for the cells, especially when you work with sensitive cells. So a good incubator is able to recover temperature and gas level within a few minutes after door opening and without any overshoot. Especially when you work with very sensitive cells or when you work in a lab where many people are sharing an incubator, it can be a good idea to have separate incubators for maintenance cultures and running experiments. So you seed the cells for an experiment, do the treatment, manipulation, or whatever you want to do, and put the cells into a separate incubator for the time of the experiment. Your colleague who must split the cells or change the medium uses the other incubator and thus your experiment is not disturbed by fluctuations of the incubator atmosphere. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Depending on the organization and work routines in your lab, there are different ways to organize the contents in your incubator to easily relocate cells and further reduce number and duration of door openings. Shown here are a few different examples. Incubators with small segmented inner doors that can be opened separately are a good measure to keep the disturbance of the incubation atmosphere to a minimum. In addition, opening a small segmented door instead of a big single inner door speeds up recovery and it also reduces consumption of CO2 gas, which reduces cost and labor for exchanging gas bottles and improves the carbon footprint of your lab. So again, here is an overview of the general cell culture workflow. And in the next chapter, I want to talk about some aspects, how you can improve the overall quality of your cells, because not only the experiments itself plays a role when it comes to reproducibility, also the routine steps like freezing and passaging and the cultivation can be a critical factor. But before we go on, I would like to start the next poll question. I'm interested in the cell types you are working with. So what cell types are you working with? The answers you can click on are 
continuous cell lines, stem cells, other primary cells, or both continuous cell lines as well as primary cells. So again, I'm interested in what cell types you are working with. Continuous cell lines, stem cells, other primary cells, continuous cell lines, and primary cells together. And again, I will give you a few seconds to answer the question, and then we will show you the results. Okay, and here we see now the results. So um, most of you, 43% is working with continuous cell lines. We have 7% of users of stem cells, 16% is using other primary cells, and 41% is using both continuous cell lines as well as primary cells. So thank you all for participating. Um, no matter which cell types you're working with, there are some ways to optimize the routine culture steps to improve the overall quality of your cells. Okay, so I want to start with the cryopreservation of cells and cell banking. During freezing and thawing of cells, the stress factors should be minimized. Having high quality cell stocks is your backup system and the prerequisite for reliable research. Maybe the most important point here is that you make sure that you don't freeze contaminated cells and that the cell line is really the cell line you think it is. So authentication of cell lines should be performed regularly, especially when you got the cells from another lab and when you use them in long-term or subsequent studies. I will come back to that topic in a few minutes. So the cells you are working with should be also tested for mycoplasma regularly. The routine use of antibiotics is not recommended because they can mask a contamination with partially resistant bacteria. And by the way, most antibiotics are not efficient against mycoplasma anyway. Filter tips give extra safety, so they should be considered at least for such important steps like cell banking. A two-stage cell banking system with a master and a working stock like shown here on this graphic on the right, provides you constantly with early passages from your cell lines. And finally, a detailed record of the cell stocks is as important as clear labeling of cryotubes. No matter what you do with the cell culture, freezing, subculturing, or plating cells for an experiment, it is important to determine the right time point for a particular cell type. In this image, you see a typical growth curve of cells in culture. It is important to not let the cells overgrow until they are in their stationary phase and do not proliferate anymore. The optimal time point is when the cells are in their exponential growth phase, also called log phase. And this is when they are between 70 and 80% confluent. Plotting a cell growth curve and determining the population doubling time for a cell line is critical for understanding the optimal seeding density and the optimal cell concentration range for the routine subculturing of a cell line. 
when you launch an experiment, it is important that you can be sure that any changes in cellular behavior are a direct response to an experimental stimulus. So for example, you want to test how the cells react to the treatment with a certain substance. So you add the substance to your cells and see increased cell death or the proliferation rate slows down. And then to evaluate a direct correlation between the changes in your cell culture and the experiment you performed, a constant culture routine is important. A growth curve provides information about cell behavior during cultivation and thus facilitates the assessment whether an, any biological response can be attributed to the effect of a tested factor or whether it may reflect an imbalance within the cell culture system itself. Another factor that has often been described to influence cellular behavior is the passage number. The passage number is a record of the number of times a cell culture has been subcultivated. There are numerous studies giving evidence that the passage number affects a cell line's characteristics over time. It has been described that cell lines at high passage numbers experience alterations in morphology, response to stimuli, growth rates, protein expression, transfection efficiency, and more. So looking at all these passage number effects in different cell types described in the literature, the basic question one can think of is how many passages are too many? And before we go on, I would like to hand over this question to you and start our next poll. What do you think? How many passages can a cell line be cultured for? And here the answers you can click on are not more than 20 passages, 20 to 60 passages, up to 100 passages, or the passage number has no influence on the cells. So again, how many passages can a cell line be cultured for? Not more than 20, 20 to 60, up to 100 passages, or the passage number has no influence. And again, I will wait a few seconds and then share the results with you. So I hope you can see all the results now. So the majority is using their cell lines for not more than 20 passages. 35% is saying 20 to 60 passages is okay. Only 4% is um, using their cells up to 100 passages. And also only 4% is saying that the passage number has no influence on the cells. So again, thank you for participating and we will go on with the presentation now. So uh, let's see, okay. Um, in general, we can say, keep the passage number as low as possible. <clears throat> Especially primary cells that have a finite lifespan are prone to genotypic and phenotypic changes as they adapt to in vitro culture. After a number of population doublings, they will simply stop growing. In contrast, continuous cell lines like cancer cells have an unlimited lifespan. But although they can proliferate indefinitely, also their genotype and phenotype can change over time. A lot of the well-established and well-characterized cell lines that are used in laboratories worldwide have been isolated from their original tissues decades ago. So when you work with such an old cell line, it is most likely not possible to, to obtain early passages from these cells but you must set a starting point as a reference to be able to obtain reliable results with these cells. First of all, the starting point should be cells of high quality. The best way to ensure this high quality is obtaining cells from established cell repositories 
And here you get well-documented, authenticated cell lines, which serve as the best reference cultures for your experiments. By establishing a two-stage cell banking system, like I showed you in one of the previous slides, with a master and a working stock, you have a constant supply of early passages from your cell lines. Now you can determine the safe passage number for your cell line of interest by establishing certain baselines. For example, test the cells for the presence and expression level of a certain protein, monitor the proliferation rate over time, and keep an eye on any changes in cellular morphology. By getting to know your cells, you will get an idea of whether and how the cells change in relation to prolonged passaging. And maybe a very simple tip, do not keep cells in culture that are not actively used for experiment. So don't passage continuously, but rather establish new cells from frozen stocks if required. <clears throat> As I already mentioned, it is important that you get to know your cells. No matter which step you perform, first take a closer look with the microscope. Not only to check the cells for possible contamination, but also to reveal the status of your culture. There's a lot of things besides contamination and confluency that can be checked with a simple bright field microscope. We have already heard about techniques to avoid that the cells accumulate in one area of the growth surface. So when you just look at the cell density here on this picture and compare the lower left corner with the upper right corner, um, you can see what inhomo inhomogeneous adhesion looks like. Um, other things that should draw your attention when looking through the microscope are changes in cell morphology. So for example, increased granularity, especially when observed around the nucleus or vacuolation of the cytoplasm can be indicators of an unhealthy culture. In some cases, it simply requires a change of medium, whereas in other cases, a more serious problem may be present such as microbial contamination, senescence of the cell lines or inadequate medium or serum. As I already mentioned, cell culture media tend to build up a lot of foam and air bubbles easily form during pipetting steps. When seeding cells, air bubbles can hinder cell attachment as already mentioned. When cells die, they will take on a round appearance, detach from the surface and float in the medium. Increased cell loss due to apoptosis or necrosis is a clear sign of an unhealthy culture that should be replaced by starting a fresh culture from frozen stock. As thawing is always a stress factor for the cells, it is normal to observe a few dead cells floating in the medium of a recently thawed culture, and then a medium change should be performed one day after thawing to avoid accumulation of toxic products from dead cells in the medium. <clears throat> Proliferating cells, like you see here, are a sign of a healthy culture. When cells undergo mitosis, they assume a round shape and partly detach from the surface before they segregate into two daughter cells that will adhere to the surface and assume their characteristic morphology again. As mentioned before, when cell density is too high, cells will stop proliferating. For this reason, as already mentioned, passaging at 70 to 80% confluence is Confluency is recommended. Constantly monitoring the cells is crucial to reveal possible contamination at early stages and avoid spreading of the contamination throughout the lab. For microbial contaminations like fungi yeast and bacteria, 
a standard bright field microscope is sufficient to detect them. And in a lot of cases, they are even visible with the naked eye as color changes and turbidity of the medium appears. There is one type of bacteria that is not so easy to detect though. When a contamination with mycoplasma or any other type of contamination goes undetected, it endangers the reproducibility of experimental data. Mycoplasma are too small to be seen in a standard microscope and they don't visibly change the culture medium. The risk of spreading a mycoplasma contamination throughout the lab is high. Therefore, cultures need to be tested for mycoplasma regularly. In this graphic here on the right, you get an idea of the dramatic intracellular effects caused by a mycoplasma infection of HeLa cells in this case. There are not many cell culture quality standards defined in detail and others performed differently between laboratories and sometimes even within the same lab. Usually everyone is treating their cells a bit different. And this is one of the reasons that contributes to non-reproducibility of experimental cell-based data. A constant and detailed documentation helps to ensure that the cell type is always handled the same way. The source should be recorded by quoting the original designation of the cell line. The accession number should be re retained if the cell line was obtained from a cell repository. Especially when establishing a new cell line, a unique name prevents ambiguity with respect to other cell lines or biological resources. Also important is an overview of the culture conditions and procedures, including information about media composition, growth matrix, thawing density, et cetera. The culture conditions should be adapted for each individual cell type. Reference images of the cells at different densities help to recognize any unusual changes in cell morphology. Especially when new people come to the lab or when you start working with a new cell line, these images help to get familiar with how the cells are supposed to look like when the culture is healthy. Images with different densities show how the morphology can change with increasing confluency. In cell culture labs, it is common that different people take care about the cells during the week. One day person A is changing the medium, the next day person B is splitting the cells. But even if you are the only person working with the cells, things like passage number, seeding number, split ratio, as well as cell viability should be constantly documented. So taken together, implementation of standardized lab practice protocols contributes to the establishment of comparable parameters for high reproducibility, independent of the person performing the experiments. When we talk about documentation and monitoring to improve reproducibility, the CO2 incubator should be part of it. Here on the lower right, you see a screenshot of the menu of the Eppendorf CellExpert CO2 incubator. The red arrow indicates a door opening, and you see that the curves of CO2 and temperature are dropping. Monitoring cultivation parameters and documenting performance of your incubator are measures to establish long-term reproducibility of the experiments in your lab. You can simply check for door openings or track back the performance data to see what might have influenced your experiment this time. So looking into the performance of your incubator should be one part of a troubleshooting of an experiment. There is one important source of variability that cannot be overlooked when we are talking about reproducibility in cell culture. 
Animal serum is a standard supplement of cell culture media. The most commonly used serum is fetal bovine serum, also known as fetal calf serum or FCS. It is added to the culture medium at a concentration of 10 to 20%, and it contains vital nutrients, hormones, growth factors, which all stimulate cell growth. Other components serve as binding proteins, which promote cell adhesion in vitro. Although the use of serum is well established in cell culture, it remains the most undefined component of culture media. Serum batches usually show qualitative variations and the lack of uniformity in composition introduces high batch-to-batch -batch variability. The development of serum-free media and serum substitutes is increasing. A variety of chemically defined serum-free media and synthetic serum substitutes is available from different suppliers. Despite of the ethical issue that come along with the use of animal-derived substances, for some applications, it is crucial to have complete animal-free culture conditions. One example are bioprocess applications, such as the production of therapeutic proteins or vaccines. Also for the cultivation of stem cells, stem cells researchers want to resign the, the use of serum because stem cells are known to react very sensitive upon the slightest variations in culture conditions. However, there is not yet an alternative for all cell types available. In addition, the alternatives to FBS that are available are usually quite costly. So there are a few things you might consider to avoid the variability of serum affecting cell-based experiments. It is recommended to test different serum batches for their ability to support growth of a certain cell type and to stock up on a suitable batch. It is also possible to request that serum suppliers reserve appropriate volumes of a suitable batch. And when that batch is used up, testing should be repeated to identify the next suitable one. I want to point out here that when you test a new batch of serum and find it to increase the growth of your cells significantly, it is not necessarily necessary beneficial for the reproduci reproducibility of previous results you obtained with these cells. So you should not simply screen for the serum batch that make the cells grow fastest. And as I already mentioned, for finding a safe passage number for your attended study, testing of different serum batches should be tailored for your intended use. For example, have a look at the expression of a certain marker genes uh, of interest and monitor cell morphology with different serum batches. The last important point here is transparency. When you report how you screen or test serum, you enable others to reproduce the data more easily. Okay, and with this, I move on to the next topic, and that is misidentified cell lines. A misidentified cell line develops from a cross-contamination of two different cell lines. Usually, this happens by an accident somewhere during the handling of cells. Mislabeling of samples and inconsistent nomenclature of cell lines also contribute to this phenomenon. As soon as two cell types are mixed up, it is very hard to distinguish these two. And this process goes fast and it might go undetected, especially if the morphology of the cells is not drastically different. But although the phenomenon of cross-contaminated and misidentified cell lines has been recognized for more than half a century, still to date, we know that 
15 to 20 percent of all cell lines used worldwide are affected. The latest version of the database published by the International Cell Line Authentication Committee, or ICLAC, last year contains around 570 cell lines that are affected by cross-contamination and misidentification. So the issue of non-authentic cell lines is a big contributor to non-reproducible research. So it's important to check the identity of your cell line, especially when you haven't obtained it from a reputable source like a cell repository where authentication of cell lines is part of the quality control. The gold standard method for authenticating human cell lines is STR profiling. This can be done in-house, but it requires expertise and the respective equipment. So it can be a good idea to look for service providers that offer cell authentication and then simply send in a sample of the cells that you want to be checked. Of course, preventing cross-contamination is easier than coping with it. So here are some simple measures for handling different cell lines in the lab. Use only one cell line at a time and take your time to handle each cell line separately. This decreases the risk of mixing up cell lines. Disinfect the workspace in the hood before you start working with another cell line and use dedicated aliquots or bottles of media, supplements and other um, liquids. Um, prepare the aliquots of each reagent carefully to avoid contamination and clearly label them with the name of the respective cell lines. Okay, and before we start with the Q&A session, I want to show you some of the solutions from Eppendorf that can help you to improve the reproducibility of your cell-based experiments. I already talked a lot about CO2 incubators. The cell expert incubators from Eppendorf provide a stable environment for your cells with very fast recovery times after door opening. They are easy to keep clean, have a very low gas consumption, and are offered with a variety of different options. A few words about liquid handling systems. Here on the left, I show you the MultiPad E3, which is an electronic positive displacement dispenser with multiple different pipetting modes, ideal for difficult liquids like DMSO, ethanol, and others. And on the right-hand side, you see our EP Motion 96, a small benchtop semi-automated device for pipetting complete 96 well plates and also 384 well plates. So an ideal tool when you do, for example, a lot of cell-based assays. And finally, I want to show you the smart block cryothaw. It was tested with different sensitive cells and is ideal for reproducible and standardized cell thawing. So a perfect alternative for thawing cells in a water bath. Okay, so if you're interested in more cell culture related content like videos, posters, webinars, and trainings, I recommend our Inside Cell Culture newsletter. You can sign up for this month, monthly newsletter at eppendorf.com slash ICC. And with this, I'm at the end of the presentation and I think we can start the Q&A now. So Eva, I hand over to you. Thanks, Jessica. Um, that was an amazing presentation. It took me back to my cell culture days. Um, yeah, we have a few questions from the audience already. So if anyone else has a question, please feel free to post this in the questions box um, that appears on the bottom of your screen. 
and we'll see how many questions we can go through today. Um, so the first question I have for you, um, how often should cells be tested for mycoplasma? Um, that is actually a very good question. So um, it depends on on your lab, actually. So how many people are working in the lab, how many people that are maybe not so experienced with aseptic technique. So um, I would recommend to start with a higher frequency of testing, maybe every um, four to six weeks. And then when you see that you have um, subsequent negative tests, you can think about um, reducing the frequency to maybe every eight weeks. Um, but again, it will depend on um, on the on the lab of um, many how uh, maybe how how much shared equipment you use in the lab, how many different cell lines. So um, in general, the recommendation is um, start with a higher frequency and then see how it goes from there, and then maybe reduce the frequency um, if that is possible. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and does the use of antibiotics in cell culture media influence reproducibility? Um, the use of um, especially penicillin and streptomycin is um, still very common, especially in academia labs, and um, the use is not very standardized. So some people add, um, add the antibiotics to their complete media bottle, and then they use up the, the 500 ml bottle um, with time, some people always add the antibiotics freshly to their media, which is actually better because um, um, penicillin and streptomycin um, are temperature sensitive. So um, in general, you can say that um, the use of antibiotics is not standardized. And therefore, of course, it can um, also have an influence on the reproducibility of results. So just imagine you want to... Um, Want, want to reproduce um, experiments with a certain cell type, um, um, experiments that you have um, seen in the literature. So you want to reproduce a certain um, experiment from a paper and um, the authors usually do not report how and if they use antibiotics. So you don't know um, if you use them the same way and therefore it can of course have an influence on the, um, on the reproducibility. So in general, I would, recommend to not use antibiotics in the routine culture as a um, preventive measure to, um, to reduce contamination. Thanks. Um, and is it possible to recover lost cells if they were lost from preserved stock or got contaminated? Um, when they are contaminated with fungi or bacteria, it is most likely that it is not, not possible because usually um, the bacteria and fungi overgrow the cells within a few days and um, um, it is very hard to get, uh, to get really rid of them. So discarding the infected cultures is the best measure. Um, also, the same applies for mycoplasma, although here... I mean, when you have very um, precious cells or um, cells that you cannot um, that you cannot discard, you can try to get rid of mycoplasma by using um, different um, antibiotics that are um, that are effective against mycoplasma in very high doses. Um, there are also service provider that providers that offer um, eradication of mycoplasma. 
but um, I would only recommend that as a um, as a last measure if it is not um, if you cannot handle handle it differently. So um, because the the treatment against the mycoplasma might also have an effect on the cells themselves. Mm -hmm. So when you do that, I would recommend um, that you give the cells a certain time for recovery after that treatment before you use them for any um, subsequent studies or, or experiments again. So I only would, would recommend that as a, as a last measure if it cannot be avoided. As a last resort. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, should I centrifuge cells right after thawing them? Um, well, that, that depends on the, on the cell line. So there are some cells that are very sensitive towards DMSO. So here, um, I would recommend to, to centrifuge them and um, discard the supernatant and uh, replace uh, the DMSO-containing freezing medium by fresh medium without DMSO. Um, other cells um, react more sensitive to the centrifugation step right after thawing. So here I would recommend to simply dilute the freezing medium with fresh culture media and then exchange the medium one day after. So um, if you're not sure which procedure is best for your cell line of interest, I would simply recommend to do a side-by-side -side test with a, with a freshly thawed culture. One, you do the centrifugation step, the other, um, you, um, you skip it and then check the viability of the cultures maybe 48 hours um, after thawing and then um, you can decide which one is the more sensitive um, procedure for your cells. Yeah. That makes sense, thanks. Um, we got several questions about mycoplasma. Everyone is like, very concerned about this, of course, but what is the best method to detect mycoplasma? Very good question. So there are a lot of different methods out there. So a very low cost, straightforward method would be um, DNA staining, for instance, with DAPI or Höchst staining. Um, if you have a very high level mycoplasma contamination, um, you see it very good. You have a lot of um, stained DNA outside of the cells. So next to the cells, when you have a low mycoplasma um, level, then it can be difficult to, in, to interpret because you might have also cell debris. So um, the DNA that is stained, so you cannot distinguish between um, mycoplasma DNA and DNA of the cells. And when you have cell debris and only a very few mycoplasma cells in your culture, it can be difficult to say if that is really a mycoplasma detect, uh, mycoplasma infection, or if it is DNA from cell debris. So I would recommend um, DNA staining only as a first measure. And then um, the most straightforward method would be um, PCR. So there is a lot of um, different mycoplasma detection PCR kits out there. You could also um, design the, the respective primers um, by yourself. So it is, um, they, are, um, they are in the literature, you can find them. And um, with the PCR, um, you get a very, um, you get a sensitive method and you can also detect the most common mycoplasma species that are known to be, um, to be uh, infecting um, cell cultures. Thanks. Um, 
So we've got a lot of questions, but we probably only have time for a few more questions. Um, so what could be the reason for slow cell growth after passaging? Um, there might be diff different reasons. So um, one reason might be that you have changed um, the, the culture medium or um, to be more precise, the, um, the serum batch. So if you have changed the serum batch and then you observe slower cell growth, that might be due to the, um, to the variability, uh, lot to lot variability of serum that I was uh, talking about during the presentation. Another reason um, could be that you have a too low initial seeding density. So simply the cell number is um, too low and then um, when you remember this um, cell growth curve of, of cultured cells, you have this initial lag phase. So this is the um, adaptation phase that the cells need after they have been passaged. And when the initial seeding density is too low, you prolong this adaption phase. So in this case, um, you could play around with the, with the seeding um, density of, um, of the cells. Thanks. That's a good tip. Um, we got a question about the humidity inside the incubator. Is that important and what level should it be? Um, humidity in general in incubators is important to avoid evaporation of the culture medium. So you have uh, in most cases uh, for mammalian cells 37 degrees inside the incubator and um, <clears throat> especially when you have um, um, very um, low media volumes, like in a 96-well plate, for instance, um, and you have the, the plates for a, for a couple of days in the incubator, um, and you do not exchange the media for experimental reasons, um, you see evaporation of the medium, and then you have, then all the um, or the contents of the medium concentrate and you have different concentration with uh, in, in different wells. So in general, the humidity inside um, is important to avoid evaporation. Um, there is, um, well, regarding the, um, the level, um, the highest level that is possible. So of course, you have to open the incubator from time to time, and then you also have fluctuations in the humidity. So um, as I mentioned, um, only open the door when necessary. And here also um, split inner doors uh, can help um, to keep the humidity stable. There is no um, exact level that I would recommend. Just simply um, keep it as high as possible by avoiding um, too, many, um, too many door openings. Of course, Humidity is also um, um, also critical when it comes to contamination. So the the standard water tray that that is available in most incubators um, here you also have to keep it very clean, exchange the water regularly um, to avoid um, to avoid that there is a contamination um, inside that water tray. I would not recommend to put any antibiotics or, or any, um, not antibiotics, um, any biocides inside the water, because here you might have the risk of um, corrosion of the metal of the humidity tray. And also, um, you know, the, the, the water is um, evaporating. And when you have any volatile um, components in that biocide, that might also um, evaporate and then um, 
might have an, in, an, an influence on the on the culture. So I would um, not recommend to have biocides in there, but rather exchange it regularly once a week and um, keep the tray as clean as possible. Yeah, just make it part of the routine. <laughs> exactly. Um, I think we have time for one more question, and uh, that is, would you recommend storing cells immersed in liquid nitrogen rather than storing them in the vapor phase? That is also a good question. So in general, I would recommend storing them in the vapor phase because um, when you have the cryotubes immersed in the liquid nitrogen, um, you might have the risk that um, nitrogen is entering the cryotube. And then when you, when you thaw that cryotube, there is a risk um, of uh, the tubes exploding. That is, uh, um, I saw that actually happening in the lab. That is not very funny. Um, so it is, um, it is just safer to keep them um, in the vapor phase. I also um, know literature um, that has proven that um, actually contamination can spread in the um, in the liquid nitrogen. I know that it is kind of an urban legend in cell culture labs if mycoplasma can survive um, uh, in liquid nitrogen or not. I, um, um, I, I know a recent review um, showing that they actually um, can survive there or have been detected uh, in the uh, in the ice of the of the um, liquid nitrogen that is forming inside the nitrogen tank. Um, so in general, I would recommend to store the cryotubes in the vapor phase. However, of course, you have to monitor the level of the liquid nitrogen regularly because every time you open the, the cryo tank, um, the, um, the liquid nitrogen can escape and then you have to closely monitor and refill liquid nitrogen um, to make sure that the, um, that the cells are stored in the uh, um, yeah, cold region in the vapor phase and they, that they don't become too warm and then uh, that might affect the viability upon thawing. Thanks, that makes sense. Um, thank you so much. That brings us to the end of our webinar today. Um, so again, thank you, Jessica, for a very illuminating presentation and a great discussion. And of course, thanks to our sponsor, Eppendorf. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at Eppendorf and Bite Size Bio. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To view the full presentation of this webinar or to browse the Listen In series, please see the episode description for links. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.